Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shaped the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Robert Sutinger. For Americans, and for U.S. officials in particular, many struggle with how to understand China. The scale, the culture, the language, the economy, the society so different from our own. Bob Sutinger had to grapple with that challenge as a new CIA analyst in 1975, just as the two countries were coming out of a multi-decade deep freeze. Little information was available about China at the time in the final throes of the catastrophic Cultural Revolution. From various positions in the U.S. intelligence community, Sutinger watched and analyzed it all for senior U.S. officials, everything from Deng Xiaoping's economic reforms in the 1970s to the bloody 1989 Tiananmen crackdown. Then, in 1994, Sutinger moved to the White House's National Security Council in charge of policy towards China. Now as a policymaker, he had to deal with one of the most challenging issues between the U.S. and China since the establishment of the People's Republic in 1949. That issue? Taiwan. In 1995 and 1996, as Taiwan started to democratize, tensions with mainland China grew. In March 1996, as Chinese missiles rained down in the Taiwan Strait, ABC News devoted an entire episode of its iconic Nightline News program to the unfolding crisis. March 21st, 1996. With two U.S. naval battle groups now in the South China Sea, the war of nerves intensifies. Beijing has remilitarized the Taiwan Strait, taking us back to the tensions of, let's say, 1958. China's military exercises serve notice to Taiwan that independence is not an option. In his conversation with me, this Vietnam War veteran explains the origins of the 1996 Taiwan Strait crisis, the importance of analyzing leadership struggles to understand why policies shift in Beijing, and the challenges facing any serious analyst in successfully decoding Chinese politics. Bob Sutinger, thanks so much for taking time. Really great to see you again. My pleasure, James. Um, I wanted to start with your... uh, graduating from college and then joining the U.S. Army to go to Vietnam. Could you just talk a little bit about that time and your personal history and then how you ended up in Vietnam and kind of what you did? Sure. Um, I went to Lawrence University in Wisconsin. Uh, I had there a Korean-American professor who was extraordinarily brilliant. And I took a course from him on Japanese politics, and he encouraged me um, to go further in Asian politics studies, but he said you have to you have to learn an Asian language, and uh, so he suggested um, Chinese, and uh, eventually I got to uh, Princeton in their cooperative undergraduate program in critical languages, and spent my senior year at Princeton and two summers at Middlebury, and then I was uh, eligible for the draft, and they didn't w- hesitate to call me up and say, "We want you." Uh, and, it, and I was among the last uh, years when the when the, the draft number was not, act, you know, active at that point. But it, would have, it, w- it was a low number anyway. So I uh, I went in the army in 1968. Um, 
went through uh, basic training at uh, Fort Dix and uh, advanced individual training at uh, Fort Leonard Wood and became a combat engineer. Um, so it wasn't really voluntary because they were drafting into the Marines uh, in Wisconsin, and I didn't think that was what I wanted to do. But I ended, ended up as a, uh, as a uh, minesweep demolitions uh, and then finally operations expert in Vietnam at Kuchi, uh 25th Division. And uh, I was there for not quite a year. I got a slight drop to go back to college or to university at Columbia. Um, fascinating. So that was 69 to 70? 69 70, yeah. And so I guess I just want to ask, then you spent most of your career on China. How do you think that time in Vietnam shaped your views about either communist systems or about uh, the way uh, East Asian societies work or, or any sort of, uh, were there any impressionable things that came out of that, that time in Vietnam? You know, in in some ways, when you're when you're in um, combat situations or even just operational situations in the in the in the military, you kind of turn off a lot of the functions of your brain. So I wasn't thinking <laughs> uh, a lot of intellectual thoughts at that point. But I had written a paper uh, for this Korean American professor, uh, which was about the determinants of the decision to bomb uh, North Vietnam in 1965, and so. Uh, I, it wasn't like I was unfamiliar with it, but I wasn't. I wasn't um, adding up the things that I had done before with what I was faced with there because I was just you know I was a ground pounder and, and a part-time tunnel rat. So I mean you don't you don't spend a lot of time you know Thinking about communist systems. No. <laughs> I mean it it was I mean compared to China of course it was a, it was a very rural uh, area that 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 we were in. There was a great deal of ideological hostility and. You know, sort of personal animus uh, that you could feel as you went around to the various areas uh, in in uh, in South Vietnam, and it's it's an absolutely gorgeous country. It's a beautiful place, uh, and when I was there, it was just filled with pockmarks of bomb holes. So it was not it was not a pleasant experience. And have you been back? Since? I haven't. I was supposed to go there a couple of times, uh, and and uh, when I was in the Clinton administration, and and it just different things caused those trips to be postponed, so I've never been back. Well, love to go. So then uh, in, you finish your studies and, and, and graduate work, uh, and then you joined the agency in 1975. Right. Um, just when relations with China were thawing, Nixon kind of went and came back. Uh, how did the, and the kind of Sino-Soviet split had happened a decade and a half earlier? Right. How did those things, that is the warming relations with China uh, and the, the relations between the Soviet Union and China separating, how did that affect when you joined the agency, kind of how you saw China or what you were kind of trying to focus on? Well, that's a good question. Um, 75, when I joined, was a, was a period of uh, relative coolness uh, in the relationship. We weren't sure exactly why, uh, and I've only discovered in, research, in, in recent Research. I mean, we, we did sort of add things up, but I was very new to things then, and, and we, <laughs> I had done a paper on, uh, on, on the uh, water margin, which was a political campaign uh, during that period, which was being used to attack Deng Xiaoping. And Deng was in a lot of trouble by 1975, and we didn't really realize how much it was. So when, when, uh, when uh, Henry Kissinger and Gerald Ford went over, they had kind of a bad time. 
uh, and Cyrus Vance had also had a bad time on his trip there. So we, you know, we were trying to figure out what you know what is really going on here. But we didn't realize, of course, it was the dung was basically on the rocks, and they put him back in his in his cage uh, after after the after the presidential visit. So um, it was it was a it was a time I, I it was a time of of considerable uncertainty about where the relationship was going. And I was assigned to uh, political military kinds of things, and they were just beginning they were to, to rehabilitate a lot of the people that had been purged in the Cultural Revolution. So I was keeping track of that uh, and, and, and trying to figure out where the, where the military was going, what was, ref, what was military for modernizations and what was military reform all about and so forth. So, and, and Mao, we knew, was in, in very bad health. So it was it was one of those periods when when um, it, there was no particular trend line. We were just sort of waiting for to see what was going to happen domestically in China. No trend line, both in terms of what was happening in China and where reform was going, but also in U.S.-China relations. Kind of how we were on it was, hold. It, it was clear that there would be some building of relations, but that exact pace and scope was was kind of uncertain. Well, the, and the Taiwan issue, of course, was was the thing that they argued about uh, and and virtually at every meeting. So it was it was still very much a part of the equation. And uh, and there wasn't there just was no progress. And and you know, only later did we understand that that Deng had taken some heat uh, in uh, in some of those negotiations over Leaning a little bit too far forward, Perfect. so it was it was uh, it was an interesting time. But I but I wasn't at, at a point in my career at that at that stage when I was being consulted on large strategic issues. I was just doing my military stuff. On the strategic, I wanted you mentioned Mao and Mao's death. You were at the agency when that happened. Yes. What can you say about that, or what do you recall about that time, uh, and in terms of kind of what we knew or what the interest level was. Uh, there's a lot going on in Washington anyway, but yeah. I'm just kind of curious. Well, yeah. um, there was there was concern uh, about what the transition was going to look like because the political situation in China at that point was uh, was quite uh, misty, shall we say? Uh, the the gang, the, I mean, the, the factional conflict was evident for all to see, mm-hmm. and there was no way to know uh, how it was going to how it was going to play out. We sort of had a sense. That, that 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 the military was going to resolve this, and uh, one of my colleagues, uh, w- you know, one of the senior analysts there, had written a paper on essentially how it was going to go out. You know, what was what were the concentric rings of security that would be used in, in if there were a coup situation? And he turned out to be right on the mark. Wow. Um, just for the record, for for the Gang of Four and what we were dealing with here with Mao, could you just kind of explain what the political system was in 1975, 1976? Well, then? it was the, it was the end of the Cultural Revolution, and and there was a, a kind of a three uh, three different factions that we could identify. Uh, one of them was uh, the the leftist faction under the Gang of Four, and, and Mao, of course, was part of that. It should have been the Gang of Five. Uh, there was a, a, a group of conservative elders, uh, Ye Jianying, Li Xianyan, uh, Deng Xiaoping, of course, was, had been part of it, but was had to sit down in early 1976, along with all the rest of the people who, who had helped him. And then there was a group of people around, uh, at, at that time, the, the, uh, the uh, general secretary, I'm sorry, the, the chairman of the party, uh, Hua Guofeng, 
And he had a number of people who had been beneficiaries of the Cultural Revolution. So they, they weren't necessarily hard leftists like, um, uh, like Jiang Qing and Zhang Chunqiao, but, but they, uh, they had been brought up by Mao and, and were presumed to be loyal to him. So they were all kind of dancing around each other and, and trying to figure out who was going to strike first and at whom. I, there, was, there was virtually no prospect that, that, there was, that there wouldn't have been some sort of denouement. Mm-hmm. Um, after Mao passed after away. After Mao passed away. I mean, it was, he, had, he had basically wrecked that system beyond repair. And, and, um, and they're still paying the price for him, in my view. But at any rate, it was, it was, re- it was interesting to watch. Although, you know, talk about through a glass darkly. It was, uh, we, we really didn't have particularly good, a good understanding of how it was, was going to go down. And we were all looking at, at newspaper articles about, you know, the, the, the uh, criticizing Lin Biao and Confucius and the Duke of Zhou. No, the Duke of Zhou was already dead at that point, but, but uh, Song Jiang was, was a, you know, an, uh, an allegorical figure for Deng Xiaoping. And, and we were reading all these editorials by the writing groups. What in the world is going on? And was embassy at that moment, at that time it was liaison office. Right. Was there any better view of what was happening from the liaison office or from Hong so. Kong? I don't think so. Hong Kong, uh, uh, Hong Kong, of course, had had uh, you know they were just beginning to develop the, the. We had some pretty good China watchers in Hong Kong, uh, and they were de- de- beginning to develop some some useful uh, media people that that were providing insights and so forth. Um, and FBIS was, of course, the main source of our information on everything. So it was, uh, it was not a, a, a time of, of great knowledge about China, and at, at least in terms of my particular neck of the woods. And so then Mao died, and then uh, you were mentioning your colleague had written a paper about what was likely to follow. Yeah. And then uh, in 1978 happened, was it clear from where you were sitting that Deng Xiaoping and the reforms were off and running, or was it still kind of uncertain? It was still a little bit uncertain by 1978. By late 1978, and of course when the, uh, uh, when the normalization discussions were going full force, Deng, Deng was very much back uh, in a leadership position, and, and he was the person that, that Ambassador Woodcock uh, met with most often. And at the same time, what's interesting is at the same time as those uh, discussions were ongoing, there was a, a, a party leadership meeting that was going on, the prelude to the, the, the third plenum of the 11th uh, Central Committee, which was uh, really quite remarkable in terms of the, of the changes that were being uh, that were being considered and, and were approved at the at the third plenum. So there there was a considerable degree of of uh, it wasn't uncertainty so much as it was just a, a, a an increasing pace of change that that you know we had sort of foreseen but but weren't sure where it was going to go. And and Deng really did a great leap forward in, in both in terms of China's foreign policy uh, at that point and, and the domestic policy. I don't think he even he even understood. Uh, what the changes uh, that they were uh, discussing were actually going to bring. And what was the internal pushback uh, for those in the system who were not in favor of some sort of closer relationship with the United States? It, it was, I think the United States was, was, an, was an issue, but it was, it was a less significant issue. I mean, we, we of course tend to think that everything is, is, is considered in terms of the relationship with the United States, but that wasn't so then, it isn't now actually, but uh, it was, 
it was more of a, of a, of a factional kind of alignment. We, we, again, we didn't have good information. I mean, it wasn't like Ji Dung Kui came out and, and, and gave a speech about how we should stay away from the Americans. Um, but, but it was considered that, uh, of course, the leftists having been pretty much set aside uh, by that point, the, um, the other faction, the, the, the people who had benefited from the Cultural Revolution were much weakened. Uh, and it was just a question of, of trying to get some of the people who were coming back into the system, um, who were being rehabilitated from cultural revolution disgrace, uh, getting them uh, figured into uh, the situation so that, so that we could understand you know, what, what they were juggling with. Uh, Dung was not at the top of the heap at that point. He was, he was definitely one of the top three uh, people, but he was still... Um, scrambling for space and still a long way to go before he actually became the primus inter pares. And that discussion was about the direction of the country after Mao's death as yeah. the role of the state and society and the party, those sorts of kind of large there, there were sorts of the, There were those sorts of things. Economic reform, as, as we understand it, hadn't really begun to percolate much. I mean, they, they sort of all, and even Hua Guofeng agreed, that we have to move away from class struggle as the key link uh, to having economic uh, empowerment and betterment for the society as, as being the, the main goal of the party's uh, efforts. And so that was approved, and, and it proved to be a, a very major kind of thing. And the four modernizations, of course, of agriculture, industry, uh, national defense, and science and technology were, uh, were, were back up and in, in, in vogue. So that part of it at least was a little bit more certain. But in terms of, of the political shakeup, we weren't sure where that was going to go. Um, on the political side, in the 1980s, there was the Democracy Wall movement, and there was, seemed to be kind of some liberalization that happened. And then I'm going to ask you about Tiananmen and kind of the okay. after that. But kind of leading up to it, it's kind of hard to remember now in China that there were actually intellectuals who were saying things that they wanted to say. And it was, I don't want to say an era of completely letting a hundred flowers bloom, but there were different ideas that were kind of floating around Beijing uh, in the eighties. How would you describe, or how did you guys have a window onto what was happening at that time leading up to Tiananmen that we could talk about Tiananmen? Well, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. We, we, we weren't sure of who the major, all the players were. Uh, but, but one of the things that was uh, an unexpected um, adjunct to the improvement of, of China's relations with the West, the, you know, the opening, uh, the reform and opening was beginning at that point. And, and one of the adjuncts to that was that some of, the, some of the people who had been prominent before the Cultural Revolution then got purged and were now coming back didn't like it uh, and, and were very concerned about, about maintaining fidelity to uh, Mao Zedong thought. Uh, you know, there's, there's all these, I mean, they, they began a, a fairly intense uh, discussion of spiritual pollution, mm-hmm. uh, and and it got to be um, uh, it it got way down in the society and, and sort of dredged up a lot of the old xenophobia that was that was part and parcel of Mao Zedong thinking, uh, and 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 so it kind of everybody sort of drew back and said, well maybe this you know opening to the West is not the best of things to do right now. Let's sort of stand back a little bit and. And the Hu Jiao Deng, Hu Yaobang, Zhao Ziyang, and Deng Xiaoping sort of formed a little triumvirate at this point. And they were, and they, you know, were working together. Zhao Ziyang was, was 
uh, more interested in, in uh, economic reform. Hu Yaobang was trying to get the party uh, back into some sort of ideological good health. Uh, and of course, Deng was trying to, to, to keep all the pieces uh, together and, and, and move in the direction that he wanted to go with respect to economic reform. So it was, it was not smooth. And, but, but, but Deng's, it was Deng's supporters uh, amongst the old guard that, that were the biggest troublemakers as far as the, the U.S.-China relationship was concerned. So we were trying to figure, you know, you need to get, get those guys under control. I mean, <laughs> and it was this broader issue that China has struggled with since the modern era of how much should be foreign and how much exactly. should be Chinese exactly. and how do they preserve their kind of... And, and, and the other, you know, the, the, the subtext to that was also how does the party maintain control uh, of this? Because there was, as you say, a lot of intellectual ferment. Hu Yaobang presided over a meeting in early 1979 that never got much publicity, but it was, it was a wide open meeting. It really was, and, and you know, we still don't have the, the information about it. But there was a lot of talk about demoization at that point. And that got everybody kind of up and, and, and concerned because, you know, that, that, was the, that was the figure that dominated their system for 50 years or however many it, it was at that point. And, and, and they couldn't even conceive of, of, of dumping him. So that right. was in, it was in play. And some of the crisis right in the Sino-Soviet split was the de-Stalinization in the Soviet oh, Union, in which exactly. the Chinese communists felt like that they, that was not done well from, from, from the Russians done. hadn't done that well, so they, they were very and not, cautious. Yeah, not for you know, Big Brother was not behaving himself. <laughs> right. So the relationship, you know, that relationship was not in good condition at that point either. But they were trying to figure out how how to improve it because they 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 had gotten over the 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 Russian focus. Um, by the late 1970s, I think, in terms of the U.S.-China relationship. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for ways to, to sort of construct a relationship that was a little healthier, a little bit more economically focused, and a little bit uh, less triangular in shape, I think. So uh, right, uh, is it in the middle of 1989, you, of the year 1989, you went down to work at INR and mm-hmm. then to work on the NIC, on the National Intelligence Council. So the State Department... Bureau of Intelligence Research and the National Intelligence Council. In the run-up to what happened in Tiananmen, how did you see things, or what is your recollection of kind of what was happening on the ground in Beijing and in other cities throughout China? It was, uh, I mean, it was preceded. In, in some ways, economic reform produced and, and uh, economic reform in the, in the ebbs and flows of the Chinese economy produced a lot of dissatisfaction. And more and more of it was being made public. There was a, there was a feeling that um, that progress was being made. That China was moving in, in by and large, the correct direction. Uh, correct direction from from a, a Western standpoint. A beneficial direction. A beneficial right? direction. That that the, that the relationship could continue to improve. Uh, that liberalization, even though it was a bad word in China, was still the direction that we perceived. Things moving in, and not without not without reason. There were a lot of people in China who were who were of the same view. The um, the demonstrations and the student dissatisfaction, um, which was widespread, was an unknown factor. I mean, we had good reporting on it in the sense that it was public, that the newspapers were covering it. Uh, embassy officers were covering it, and we had a fair amount of information. But how long it was going to last, whether it was going to be tolerated, it was clear that, again, this this xenophobic aspect, this conservative 
element that was that was still strong within the leadership was um, was grumbling, and um, so there were differences within the regime. Deng was was trying to get people to pay attention and get it under control, and so we knew there was trouble out there, but we didn't know how it would manifest itself. We had no way to know um, really that 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 the level of dissatisfaction had grown so high that they could bring 200,000, 300,000 people into Tiananmen Square on any given day, and in some cases probably closer to a million. Uh, I mean, it was just, we, we were just uh, astonished. So, um, and, and then trouble, because, it, you know, I mean, in, in, in where I was working at that point, we didn't have a lot of serious disagreements that, that things were going to go bad because... Uh, you know, there were too many things that we could see that that the media couldn't see that that suggested that that preparations were being made for uh, for a crackdown. And I don't think any of us had a, a good sense of the timing of that. But but by the time it was impending, we knew it. Mm-hmm. So um, it was just sort of how bad is it going to be? I mean, I I had was at that point I was Carl Ford, who was the national intelligence. Officer had gone already gone over to the Pentagon at that point, so I was kind of acting NIO and you know writing these one-page sort of sit reps and I and I said as long as there's a million people in the square, it's unlikely the PLA is going to attack them. Uh, but once the numbers get down, um, you know anything can happen. Hmm. So and and we had uh, all kinds of resources uh, dedicated both at the State Department where I where I had been and then at the at the NIC. Um, at the agency, they had a lot. They had task forces mm. in both places, so there was a lot of attention being paid to the details. Before getting to the crackdown itself, um, how do you think what was happening in the Soviet Union affected Deng Xiaoping and the other Chinese leaders in their view on how to handle the demonstrators? Hmm. Good question. I I don't think that I at least was looking at it in a comparative perspective. I mean. There was, there was, I think, a, a fairly good analytical consensus within the within the intelligence community that that the approach the Chinese had taken was different from Glasnost and Perestroika. Uh, that that the Chinese were doing economic refor- reform first and political reform more slowly, and 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 we could, of course, by 1987, Hu had had been had been taken down, uh, and and Zhao Ziyang was was back up at the top, but it was beginning to be clearer and clearer that he was being hamstrung. Can you just mention for 1987, Hu Yabang being taken down, what the significance was of that? Well, Hu Yabang was, was uh, considered to be sort of more open-minded, uh, a little, he, he wasn't pro-Western by any sense of the imagination. He was, he, he in fact wasn't really fond of the West, but, but, uh, but he, was, he, he was focused on, on, on fixing the things that they had broken in the Cultural Revolution, and uh, and 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 reforming the party structure so that it was more democratic, uh, a little bit more uh, open to variant ideas, willing to listen rather than just tell people to shut up, uh, and 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 he and Zhao had established a good working relationship, not altogether smooth, uh, not that any ever are in that system, but but it was it, it seemed to be working, but he was clearly under fire. Uh, and by 1987, what we didn't know then was that Deng had turned on him, 
and that wasn't clear until until you know later information and that was the end of him i mean it wasn't that he was ostensibly blamed for not cracking down on the student demonstrations that were taking place in several cities in beijing in late 1986 but um he had actually brought that under control he had just he had offended Deng Xiaoping, Chen Yun, and, and Li Shenyan. And so they just decided, okay, uh, he's got plenty of, of enemies, let's, let's just take him down. And they thought that Zhao would be more controllable. Uh, and in some ways he was, but, but, but the political dynamics at that point had, had, had just gotten to a point where these issues wouldn't go away. Uh, they, you know, the 86 demonstrations were a prelude to 1989, and and although they weren't anywhere near on that scale, they scared them, mm-hmm. scared them badly, mm-hmm. and so they weren't, pre- you know, with that as the prelude, they weren't prepared to, to allow uh, those kinds of things to happen again. So then, June 3rd, June 4th, uh, a number of by then a number of the protesters had left, and there were uh, some left in the square, and the, the PLA came into the square and went to other parts of Beijing and. Um, what do you think the lessons were that the Chinese leadership took away from that experience? Not necessarily, you know, June 5th, but kind of that year and then subsequent years. What's the kind of consensus you think that the leadership formed about the crackdown and how to deal with that part of Chinese society or kind of inter-party rivalry? Well, I think I think they concluded first and foremost that, that they can't allow this sort of thing to happen again, um, that, that security... Uh, and and political security is uh, a primary consideration, and they learned that not only from their own experience, but I think from Gorbachev uh, and and his fate as well. Because of course the Soviet Union was in a, a bit of uh, disarray at that point. Eastern Europe was kind of you know going in in, in in odd directions, and they just there. I think there was a there was a deep sense of paranoia, uh, and and they weren't prepared to allow. What happened in Eastern Europe to happen in China, and when it began to happen, um, they—they, they, uh, I mean, the reason that they didn't move earlier was because they couldn't agree, and the reason that things moved as quickly uh, in this in favor of the students, and uh, in, in favor of getting large crowds out on the street was because they saw the political disarray at the top. Uh, they saw that 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 uh, that Zhao Ziyang and Li Peng were 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 on different in different places. On how to respond to this, so there was they couldn't agree if they should clear the square or if they should negotiate or correct. what 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 package of incentives or what really the students would want is that is that well I, I I think there was there was uh, there was disagreement about whether they should even talk to them uh, and 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 some of the the student uh, leaders were um, <laughs> somewhat less than respectful to their elders so so and and so the personal dimension of that also be I mean not going to talk to that guy and or, or that woman and um, so but but the, but this the splits in the leadership were deeper uh, and involved some fairly fundamental perspectives on on the same issues that they'd been wrestling with before West, westernization the degree of foreign interference uh, and and of course there were many in uh, several in the leadership who, who blamed it all on the West which they eventually did as, as a group but I think some of them really believed that it was it was too many foreign reporters that were there for Gorbachev, uh, and they were stirring up trouble and, and inciting students. And the demonstrations were taking place, you know, before the world and in front of the cameras, and it just made everything worse. So it was a it was a kind of uh, 
it was a collection of all of all of the worst things that they could imagine happening. Uh, that's the kind of Chinese assessment of what they need to do and not repeat. What do you think the U.S. assessment was for how we handled our kind of bilateral relations? Diplomatic relations had been in place for 10 years by that point. General Scowcroft took his uh, two trips to Beijing. Um, how do you think the U.S. side, or what were the things that you were being asked to kind of consider as U.S. policymakers were saying, what could we do right, or or what could we, what did we get wrong in, in our interaction in that? Well, I, you know, I stayed on as uh, on on the National Intelligence Council f- until 1994, and uh, a lot of the things that we were doing uh, were focused on other areas of Asia. So I was, you know, we were doing Korea and we were doing Southeast Asia and so forth, and there was and and there was a lot of a lot more attention being focused on that, and and the proliferation issues, of course, were also beginning beginning to be a, a major uh, impediment to any kind of um, significant improvement in U.S.-China relations. It was beginning to be a problem, and uh, and of course, uh, Tiananmen exacerbated all of the above because it created a. a climate of hostility in the United States that that took quite a while to to go away I mean it was it was politically uh, controversial the Bush administration was was trying to <clears throat> to keep things on an even keel and to not I mean they reacted a little bit slowly initially uh, but eventually they they did some things that mattered and and that and that gave some economic pain and a lot of political embarrassment uh, to to the Chinese regime and Deng, of course, was was um, kind of scrambling to keep his balance at that point. China's internal political situation was very much uncertain, so um, there was there was a lot of uh, of kind of milling around. Really, that uh, there was there was uh, of course a presidential election uh, that was that was coming up that that needed to be addressed. Um, the, 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 the Democratic Party and the Clinton administration in particular uh, and the Congress was uh, adamant about punishing China in, in some way or another. And so that was, that was in play. The Skolkov trip, trips were secret uh, but didn't so, it remained so for very long and, and became uh, part of the, 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 the yelling and screaming. And, and so it was... Um, when I finally started in 1994, things had not really been resolved. There was still a yearly uh, argument about whether to provide most favored nation trade status uh, to the People's Republic of China, and uh, and it had to be argued at great length. And and so no, you know nobody was happy with China policy at that point. The president didn't like it. Warren Christopher didn't like it, uh, and and Tony Lake didn't like it. So. You know, we were trying to figure out well, what do we do now? So, moving on to your your time at the NSC, before getting to the details of the policy, could you just talk about the mental shift that happens from being an analyst, the national intelligence <laughs> officer, from kind of describing what's happening in another country, trying to analyze it so that policymakers can make an informed decision, to mm. being a little bit on the other side, which is. You know, thanks for that information. Here's what we should do. We should you know, send the Secretary of State or not send the Secretary of State or work with Congress on this legislation or not work with Congress. How, how is that kind of mental adjustment after, at that point, you'd been 20 years uh, almost yeah. in the agency to from a producer of intelligence reports and assessments to a consumer? How, how, how did that mental shift happen? Well, I had the, the, uh, the, the good fortune to have spent almost five years in the National Intelligence Council which entailed 
um, regular uh, interactions with policymakers, both uh, as uh, you know, we often went as as uh, as participants in various policy consideration meetings, uh, including those in the Situation Room. So you, you kind of got a sense for what, uh, and, and part of every every preparation that we did for the DCI uh, at that point was to say, all right, which bureaucracies are coming in from which direction and who has which policy perspectives in mind and, and who's going to give you trouble uh, in terms of your presentation of just the facts. So I was familiar with the, uh, with the environment, uh, although I hadn't been in, you know, except as a visitor in the, in the executive office building. But um, it was, a, it was a, a, a change of perspective that, uh, that was still fairly, uh, fairly sharp. I mean, in the early phases, I was still kind of the person that they that they wanted to provide information, background on stuff rather than policy advice. You know, there was still then, and probably still now, uh, a certain level of of distrust of um, of people with an intelligence background, uh, and even though, you know, as a rule, we kind of scrupulously tried to avoid policy perspectives, you can't always do that. Uh, and in, in question and answer, particularly with the Congress, they always wanted to know what you really thought they should do. Uh, so it, so I had a, a bit of an introduction by being on the National Intelligence Council to that kind of perspective, but it was still much more intense mm-hmm. than I, than I inspect, expected. And, and, and the political inputs to the policy process um, were, uh, were not a shock, but they did require a period of adjustment when you have to deal with uh, things the president read in the press, uh, of, of people the president talked to on the phone that you didn't even know about, uh, of, of people coming in to visit him and coming in to visit you uh, and, and bringing their own perspectives or their or lobbyists or whatever and, and, and foreign visitors and so forth. You had to juggle a lot more balls in order to kind of get a sense of, you know, what does the president need to know? And, that, and that's really where I thought my, uh, my benefit uh, would come from was, was that I could, I could kind of bring to bear a lot of information from a lot of different perspectives. Uh, as far as um, recommendations, um, I was the, 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 sort of the China director, and I, and I worked for a person who had the Asia portfolio and, and, uh, and Stanley Roth. And he was superb. He had worked on the Hill for a long time and knew, you know, all of the issues extremely well. So between the two of us, and there were only two of us at that point, uh, we had uh, a pretty good handle on both the data and how to deal uh, and how to utilize it. And both of us had pretty good relations with uh, Tony Lake and Sandy Berger, uh, who were at the top of the NSC food chain. And so. Uh, and it wasn't by any means smooth, but but we came to an understanding. We didn't always uh, prevail. Uh, and and again, meaning the regional view the, of how to deal with the issue might be different from what the national security advisor and deputy national security advisor had for political reasons absolutely. or other other or or, or, or what the interests. or what the what the defense department right. would be interested in or what the what the, you know the state department mm-hmm. was going to come in on that particular day. Yeah. Uh, to say nothing of, of uh, the, the, the U.S. Trade Representative's office. And, and so, I mean, the, the bureaucratic complexity in, in commerce, I mean, you'd, you'd have these meetings at the, at the topmost levels, 
and uh, they wouldn't be shouting matches because they were mostly mostly uh, very polite, especially when Warren Christopher, who was just out, you know the ultimate gentleman, uh, was there, and 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 so they were, and and they were they were not uh, raucous or, or argumentative necessarily, but the, the disagreements within the bureaucracy were clear. So you had to deal with that as well. And then the president took a kind of standoffish view on China early on in his administration. He did, he hadn't. He, he had backed off on the on the uh, uh, on the MFN issue, but he hadn't warmed up to Jiang Zemin, and he hadn't taken that relationship into his pocket to to, to you know to nurture it. You had mentioned one of the things that you went on to to work on was nonproliferation right. as a serious challenge that China was posing for security for both the Middle East and, and East Asia. Right. Could you just talk a little bit about what the problem was, what China's thinking was, and then how you tried to start addressing some of the, those challenges? Well, the, the, the problems were that, that the Chinese uh, had a certain capability with respect to uh, nuclear weapons development. Um, uh, also, um, missile uh, parts and, and production, also other kinds of weapons of mass destruction. And their uh, economic development program did not specifically proscribe um, sending those things to other interested parties, and and they were they outside were, of China. Outside of China, in the Middle East, uh, Iran and Iraq. Of course, they had they had helped to fund both sides in the Iran-Iraq war, and and so there was a market for their for their stuff, and and we didn't really want that market to be developed because there's there there weapons of mass destruction were were not unimpressive so we were trying to work with them to uh, to sign up to various international accords uh, and to and to uh, reach bilateral agreements on what's the right way to deal with this how should we should we hit you with something that, that will make you squirm and then of course there was then then there was a congressional uh, element to this as well there was I think it was called the Helms amendment uh, which which said if you have any evidence of them of them breaking their uh, commitments on these sorts of things, we're going to go after them, you know, with economic sanctions and all kinds of other punishments. So it was, it was a, it was a very uh, delicate, I think is the term that is often used for that uh, part of the relationship. And so we were trying to figure out, you know, what's the context in which uh, we can discuss this issue with the relevant authorities uh, in the People's Republic? How can we bring it to their attention in ways that won't cause them to, you know, Huff and puff and go away from the table, so that was that was I think part of the reason that that um, that that the the National Security Council began uh, in 1995 and 1996 um, to, to to take more a, an active pers- perspective in the whole array uh, of China related issues, and there were a bunch of them at that point. It was not just that, but there were still human rights things. There were there were prisoners that were being taken, and then there was, there you know, there was the Taiwan issue. Yeah, I want uh, to ask you about the okay. Taiwan Strait so, crisis. So, <laughs> yeah. But 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 nonproliferation was a, was a serious issue because it was a serious issue in the U.S. government. We had you know, maybe you talked about Einhorn, and, and he was uh, he was the, the 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 Merlin of our of our uh, of our efforts. And I know you guys had Gary Seymour at the Gary NSC. Seymour was on the NSC, and and Dan Poneman, mm-hmm. uh, and so we had we had a pretty uh, formidable group of people, and, and they were determined that they were going to make progress on this issue. Um, on the Taiwan front, uh, 
Li Denghui was granted a visa to go to his alma mater the, at that time, the president of Taiwan, and he gave a speech in Cornell. The PRC was not particularly happy about that. Um, what was your interaction, both internally within the U.S. government, but then also with, um, I presume, Chinese ambassador and Chinese officials in Washington during that kind of tense time, ninety-five, ninety-six, ninety-seven? Well, it was in, it was on te- intense on all fronts. Uh, there there was uh, considerable disagreement on whether or not that invitation should be granted, and at that point, there was a lot of congressional pressure. I mean, there was a there was a uh, there was one non-binding resolution that was passed by the House, you know, with only one vote, <laughs> uh, disagreeing that that we sh- that he should be given uh, a visa and he should be allowed to visit. We had in 1994 we had done a uh, a review of the Taiwan of our Taiwan policy uh, because it it had begun to kind of uh, cramp. Uh, interactions with Taiwan, which were which were growing at that point, and and there was of course always uh, a congressional uh, group that wanted better relations across the board and allow uh, more more visits and more contacts and so forth. And between the U.S. and between Taiwan the U.S. and Taiwan, regardless yeah. of PRC pressure, and the PRC was at that point, I think, very unhappy about the way things were moving, so they were prepared to sort of uh, overreact. Uh, in 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 consideration of this, and then our own policy process, um, kind of, it didn't work the way that everybody wanted it to because um, the president was listening more to congressional voices, and and his own lawyerly instincts were that I mean, look, here's a, here's a guy who is was American educated, uh, he wants to come back to his alma mater, and you're going to say the PRC doesn't like it, so we shouldn't let him. Come on, that doesn't that doesn't make sense. And he never he never thought that that was a sensible approach. And, and, and also a political leader uh, in some ways. He w- Clinton was a political leader, and Li Dong is also a political. Exactly, leader. So you have that exactly. Kind of and and I, and I think he would have loved to to meet with him, but yeah. but there was just there was no way in in terms of the, the the other problems that we were having in the relationship, and and they were getting worse. Um, there was no way that 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 he, that he was going to. Put all of that on the line just so Li Dengue could go to Cornell, uh, but but he didn't like that decision. And he finally, we you know we 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 did a uh, a decision paper which I wrote up in the book uh, that that said give us a little time to calm down the PRC, which is which is jumping up and down and and, and really not considering this issue in in any sort of careful way. And the ambassador was. Was very spun up. The ambassador Li uh, Daoyu at that time was was uh, and and his all of his people were kind of constantly pounding on our doors and saying you can't do this, you can't do this. You know, Christopher promised that you wouldn't he wouldn't do it, uh, and and so we were trying to deal with that as well. And and it, and it finally did come down to a presidential decision, uh, which which he agreed. Um, uh, he would give us a little time. Uh, to, to you know, to help smooth everybody and, and get all the the the, uh, the processes lined up in advance and try to at least dampen down what we can what we knew was going to be an overreaction, and and I wrote a, an annex to the to the paper uh, after the you know became clear that they weren't going to go along with the NSC's recommendations, which you know was put this off. Wait till there's more congressional pressure. 
uh, before you before you finally give in. And and you know, and and, and Tony Lake said, no, that's not going to happen. And, and Christopher agreed. Uh, and Sandy Berger was just left out in the cold. So he said, go back and rewrite the paper. And I said, all right, I'll rewrite it if you if you put this annex in. That will tell the president. Here's, here's the, the things the PRC might do. Here's, here's what the PRC is going to do, and and we got that pretty right. Uh, you know, the the IC was very helpful on that uh, on that score. So, um, and what we didn't count on was the president was going to meet with uh, Chuck Robb that evening, and and you know just have uh, a, a session in the Oval, and and Chuck Robb went out of that meeting and told the told the press, Taiwan press in particular. So it was. It blew up, you know, the very next day, and and then we, and then it never, it never recovered. So, so on the PRC reaction, they announced some kind of closure areas where they're going to fire some missiles, and the U.S. decided to uh, move some naval assets. Could you talk a little about the internal discussion of after, after the visit, after Li Donghui came here and spoke to his alma mater, uh, and the Chinese put in place what they saw as what they needed to do to signal their unhappiness with both the United States and Taiwan. Um, what was that internal conversation like? Well, it, it was, you know, one, how bad is this? Uh, and are we talking serious uh, prospects for for uh, hostilities? Or are we just talking about taking our time and, and, and working it through and saying nice things and trying to continue the dialogue? And particularly important was the dialogue on, on, uh, on uh, nonproliferation. Uh, human rights was never a was not a, a dialogue that that most people considered uh, was very fruitful. Uh, it was necessary, and 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 we worked at it, but it wasn't it wasn't fruitful. Um, there was a presidential meeting uh, at the UN uh, in that year, it was 1995. So so people kind of thought, well, maybe we can get through this. And uh, different different departments had different perspectives on that. I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't convinced that that it was just going to go away, and and other people thought it seems it's getting better. They're, you know, they're not swearing at us quite as often as they used to. Uh, and, and 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 as as I observed in in my book that the the summit meeting between President Clinton and President uh, Jiang at in the UN in 1995 went pretty well, but but then you know that we weren't. Fully aware of the of the amount of turmoil uh, within the PRC government that was being generated by arguments uh, about how they should be doing this, and and that probably was was led it to is what was what led it to go a, a little bit further south to, to take a little bit more provocative uh, a perspective in the 1996 tests and and, and exercises. So uh, there there were just a lot of things that were going badly uh, at that point. I mean they had. Uh, Harry Wu was arrested, and and, and uh, the first lady was going to to Beijing for the women's conference, and and there was uh, Donorgate was beginning to happen, and, and it was it was just you know it was just so many things were going on, and and the internal uh, decisions were 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 much more carefully considered, I think, than than people realized. There there was a there was a, a, an extensive uh, discussion of of uh, of alternative scenarios that involved uh, the Defense Department and the National Security Council, and uh, and and the intelligence community, to a certain degree, not that much. It was, you know, so there was there were lots of talks going on, and, and about what the options would be for about the, about what you know what are, what are the escalatory problems that we might be facing, and if they did 
actually, if one of those missiles either went astray or was deliberately aimed at Taiwan, what would be, you know, the ladder of escalation that we would deal with to try to avoid, you know, go, getting into a really serious kind of conflict? And and uh, and and that was that was a pretty serious discussion that was very sober sobering for the for the president. Uh, he uh, really thought this could this could go really badly uh, if we don't handle it right. So there, there was a a, a fairly uh, solid consensus that that we that we were aware of what the risks were and 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 how it was going to play out. And at the end, the, the decision was made at the Pentagon uh, in a meeting that involved the State Department and the intelligence community and the NSC. And uh, uh, Bill Perry, who was the minister, uh, the Secretary of Defense, at that point, kind of surprised everybody by by sort of upping the ante. A little bit by saying we're going to send you know two carrier battle groups there, and one of them is going to go into the Taiwan Strait, uh, and and that uh, that got I had sort of uh, prepared uh, Sandy Berger and Tony Lake for that possibility coming up, and they were able to talk people down from that. Um, but it was uh, you know it was a it was I think a carefully considered decision. Uh, th- there was there was nothing hasty about it, and 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 they parked the. Second carry battle group off the east coast of China, rather than someplace more threatening. And the NP, Chinese National People's Congress was going on at, at that point, and so there was all kinds of, of flack in the air by you know people saying well, it was going to be a sea of fire and all the rest of that. So it was it was it was tense, but it wasn't it wasn't overwhelmingly so. It wasn't one of those things. Where, you know, if we if we don't do this right, we're going to go to war. It was we weren't we weren't uh, frightened or mm-hmm. or. Except exceptionally nervous. We just thought this is going to be, you know, a little bit of a white knuckle trip, but we'll get through it. And what do you think the Chinese side took away from those two years, ninety-five to ninety-seven, in what happened with Li Dunhui coming here, their missiles exercises, and our our response? Well, I mean, obviously, I don't know what the considerations were, but it was clear almost immediately after the the exercises on the offshore island that went pretty badly, just mostly because of the weather. Uh, and and Chen Chichun, I think, did a very quick turnaround. Foreign minister at that time? Or yeah, was he, he was the foreign minister. And and it was, I, I think there were a number of people that, that, uh, that said, you know, letting the military have free reign on policy decisions inside China wasn't necessarily a great idea. So we began to, and uh, you know, not long afterwards, others began to have discussions at a lower level with the Chinese on crisis management. Uh, I think they, and, and that, got, that got reiterated, of course, in 2001 when we had the EP3 incident, but they began to, you know, to, to sort of think that the kind of military reaction that, that was not dictated after a serious consideration of all of our alternatives is not necessarily the best policy for us. Didn't turn out well, so there was there was thought about, you know, well, what can we do, both in terms of the bilateral relationship with the United States and internally inside the People's Republic of China, to to improve uh, our decision making process. They, I don't I don't think they were impressed with the way that we did it on our side, but at least at least it, you know it ended up all right. It let them be reflect. Reflective yeah. about what they should be doing in, yeah. in future crises. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you've had a career of looking at China. Gone through some of it here today. 
I guess I would kind of ask a very basic question on, you know, can the United States trust the Chinese Communist system and party in a way that we can kind of work with them? Or is it such a system that is so different from our own or so focused on other objectives that essentially you kind of can't reach understandings with them because of that kind of political chasm? Well, I, th- I think you have to you have to work with them. There's no, there's no option on that. China has, has always been really too, we, we ignored them for a long time. It didn't work out all that well. Um, can we trust them? No. I mean, that, that system and the more I've been working on my current project, uh, the, the more uh, reason I have to be very skeptical about, about whether, whether, they, whether that regime can be trusted. Um, their, their power considerations, their internal uh, management of, of all issues, the politicization of everything, uh, and, and the degree to which the maintenance of, of control and, you know, it's authoritarian is not quite strong enough to talk about what's going on there. Uh, it's, it's moving right now in, in what I consider to be an unhealthy direction, both for their internal stability and for relations with the rest of the world. Yes, they've got all kinds of efforts to Belt and Road Initiative and, and you know, AD, what is the development bank that they're, that they're ADDB or whatever. Uh, these things are, are moving them outward, but politically they're moving inward. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it, it's, it's hard to see how that's going to be sustained over time. And I don't think that we should um, uh, be as <sighs> trusting of them as, 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 as we have been in the past. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, you'd mentioned a little bit about Xi Jinping's leadership style versus, say, Jiang Zemin. I mean, you dealt a lot with kind of Jiang Zemin's China. Yeah. Uh, and now we have a little bit of a different China. How do you see those those two leadership styles, or, or what lessons should we learn for dealing with China today? Well, it's it's really. I mean, you're dealing with. I mean, people always describe the, the black box of domestic politics in China, and, and I've you know tried to tried to find a way in to see what's going on in there, and, and never felt that was wondrously successful. But I think it's important to keep trying. Uh, because I think, I mean, anybody that would look at the United States, for example, and say, well, do you think Donald Trump has made a difference in American foreign policy? Duh. Uh, that's, of course he has. Uh, and, and why would you think that, 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 that the PRC, uh, which is run by a communist party, um, would continue to think along the same lines under a new leader who has much different interests, much different support base uh, than his predecessors? Why would you not think that that his presence at the top of that leadership is important? You've got to know what these guys are thinking, doing. Uh, I think Jiang Zemin had had a very a, a basically positive viewpoint on on the opening to the West. Uh, he saw it as good for China. He saw it as good for his reputation. He he uh, was very proud of the fact that he could speak a few words of English, including you know the the Gettysburg Address. Uh, which I think I heard twice, but uh, but Xi Jinping is is and if you read his early speeches, boy, he is he is anti-Western, very strongly so, and uh, and, and again reflecting a different dimension on that same old problem. You know, does does China want to be part of the international community, or does it want to just take a piece of it and try to keep the rest of it out? Uh, I think Xi Jinping is in a different place on that, and I think he is uh, he has been. Uh, 
working both the politics internally in China and the policies in a, in a way that is um, is worrisome uh, in, in terms of the U.S.-China relationship. So I, I'm I'm not an optimist. Bob Sumner, so great to see you. Thank you for all of your uh, many years of work for the U.S. government and uh, afterwards in sharing your insights on how to read what is a, a challenging country and uh, one that we'll have to keep paying attention to going forward. Really appreciate it. Thank you, James. Robert Sutinger speaking with me from Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green. 